And by the way, people who understand this can understand the future and see what's coming. Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here back with you. Boy, I am back on fire. This is old school analysis and research. You're going to love this. This is really important. By the way, people who understand this can understand the future and see what's coming. Today, we are going to be responding to a piece that just came out by Doomberg, which a lot of you sent me and asked questions about. And uh, well, let's go right there. So this is it. Uh, he wrote an article called the peak cheap oil myth. And I put a question mark because is it really a myth? We're going to take this apart and take a look at it because I love being challenged. But by the way, if you get this story right or wrong, a lot matters. Your whole future matters, um, how things turn out. So we're going to go deep into the data. This is an example. Peter K. Hi, Peter. You sent me this awesome thing that, you know, he's been following me for a long time here. We go back as uh, far as 2011. He said, but what if something's off in this calculus about oil that I've been talking about, where there's this thing called peak oil and in fact, peak cheap oil. And, uh, he said somehow in spite of all of the above, the U S is currently producing more oil and LNG than could possibly have been expected. How is this possible? On Wednesday night, I literally started an email to you to ask that exact question. And then in a case of incredible synchronicity, Doomberg, a Substack I love, I do too. I'm a subscriber, um, came out with an article linked to below. Everything in the article seems plausible. And if true, would move the event horizon out in time a significant distance, right? Another decade seems easy when presented with this analysis. I really wonder what you make of this article. If it's convincing, does it change your mind? I love being challenged because that is how we sharpen our arguments. And today I really sharpened my pencils. A full week of analysis and thinking went into this presentation, which you're about to see. Much of this is public. The rest is for my subscribers who like to go more deeply into the details. So that's what we will be doing with them. Dr. Sharp, one of the subscribers at my website said, Hey, Chris Martinson or any others, I'm not a paid subscriber to Doomberg, so I only get the teaser, but I saw this article, peak cheap oil is a myth. And I thought I'd see what kind of thoughts folks had from the teaser. It seems like Doomberg is arguing that there is more than enough for long enough. That's the subtitle of his article. It doesn't seem to jive with what I've been learning about here at PP. Excellent. So let's go there, Dan and Peter and everybody else who's wondering. Here's the thesis. It starts out like this. Um, this came out, I guess, in December. What's that? Uh, 22nd. There was an intro. Uh, he's writing here, Doomberg, about uh, Simmons, Matt Simmons, uh, who uh, wrote a book called Twilight in the Desert. And he says here, quote, Simmons book was just another in a long line of Malthusian techno pessimist thinking inspired by the likes of Paul Ehrlich and other founders of the modern environmental movement that the material resources of earth are objectively finite and the world's population continues to expand are both undeniable facts. True. But that the two will collide in a crisis of catastrophe in a time frame that matters is a different proposition altogether. The seductive nature of this thesis, the kind of assertion that feels like it could be true, makes it difficult to vanquish and variants can be found in all manner of contemporary academic and economic research. So that's a fairly dismissive point of view there. So, you know, you can see some fairly dismissive language, Malthusian, techno-pessimist. It feels like it could be true. You know, these, it's sort of just like a, there's this doomish side, which is strange coming from a guy named Doomberg. <clears throat> but uh, we're going to tackle this completely and totally because it really, oh, everything matters. Everything hinges on this. For example, 
You've seen me put this chart up before. This relates to debt to GDP. Debt is debt. GDP is the income in this story. This chart not being a massive, massive problem, dare I say predicament for United States citizens, but similar charts apply to the rest of the world. For it not to be a massive predicament is 100% dependent within our lifetimes of Doomberg being right that there is more than enough oil for more than long enough. For that thesis to be true, this, this chart needs that thesis to be true very, very badly. And I'll go through that in a lot more detail. But isn't it kind of weird that the debt chart looks suspiciously like this chart, which is total primary energy consumption. And let me get my drawn tool out here real quick. Uh, da -da -da -da. Yeah, because um, all of this from here to here, that is all fossil fuels. Um, and we could even argue that the amount of nuclear we have and uh, hydro are themselves derivatives of fossil fuels. Because if we didn't have the oil and the coal to mine and refine and build all those amazing technologies and dams and things like that, we probably wouldn't have those either. So, hmm, that's kind of weird, isn't it? That we started on this big, massive debt explosion about the same time that we went on this huge energy uh, explosion here. Well, no, it's not surprising at all to those of us who've been following this, those of you who've been following me, you understand this connection, right? Because we know that energy is the economy. As we can see here, uh, we have a chart that shows global GDP, that's gross domestic product, compared to oil consumption. And so there's GDP in trillions up the y-axis across the x. We have oil consumption in thousands of barrels per day. And here we can see that there's pretty much a straight line that you can draw through those dots. A very high correlation, an r-squared of 0.93, meaning that if you wanted to ask and answer the question at any point in the future, how big is the economy going to be? 93% of the explanation for that would come from knowing how much oil was being consumed at that future date. If you want more economy, you're going to have more oil being burned. And of course, that makes sense, right? We understand this intuitively because if you went out and put on your energy goggles, as we've talked about in the crash course, and you went out into the world where the economy is happening, you would see things like cars and trucks and airplanes and you would go into a store and you would see all these thousands and thousands of different things you could buy in there coming from all different portions and corners of the globe. And you would understand that everything from the materials, the plastics, the dyes, the resins all come from petroleum. You would understand that the energy to smelt, refine, create ores, steels, so all the metals came through, again, fossil fuels. You would understand that to move all of those things where they were manufactured, maybe in some distant country to where you're consuming them also took oil. So obviously, if you took oil out of that equation, we went back to horses and carts or whatever, bicycles, we wouldn't have nearly as much economy. So that's why a chart like this makes sense. I mean, you just think about it, you go, oh yeah, obviously, if we're going to do more economy, and that means more people driving more miles, taking more vacations, buying more homes, buying more cars, doing more things, eating more food, every single one of those has oil baked in it. So it's not at all a surprise that this chart and this chart and this chart all have a lot to do with each other. And that is the central thesis of the crash course is that, well, it's this, it's just this, that if you really want to understand what's happening with our overall economy, which is really a function of debt because we live in a fiat debt-based money system, then you really, really ought to understand the relationship between GDP and energy, which is very strong. And by the way, this isn't talked about a lot and it's not a dominant thesis out there 
it's going to be. You're, you're way ahead of the curve hearing this here now. You are way ahead of the pack. To be able to connect this concept is really important because once you do, you'll be able to see the future a little bit better. So this matters a lot because the Doomberg thesis is this. That line just goes like that forever and ever because humans are clever and we use technology. Uh, that's the central thesis he has and, and he's not been wrong to a point. But there's some data here we have to look at. This needs to be a data-based, grounded conversation so that the techno-pessimist Malthusians aren't just being offset by techno-hopium-optimists. Those aren't countervailing forces that I care to, to argue with. I don't care. What's the data? So let's take a look at that um, very quickly. By the way, if we even just get that, if, if energy somehow flatlines out because we can't or we don't want to, get or burn more fossil fuels that's a very different future we can't have the economy we used to have it can't continue to grow the way it did but if this happens uh-oh now we're talking mad max you better know how to garden and uh your your currency units are going to go up in flames right so this matters a lot it's a very important topic we should get it right and this is why i am so passionate about this subject because this is going to shape the next few years of our lives if I'm right, in a very different way than if Doomberg's right. So who's right? Let's go there. Um, so of course, when you say, hey, I think there's there's plenty, there's more than enough for long enough, you could define what do you mean long enough? Um, the question then would be, well, what resource base are you using? Because technology can't extract something that isn't there. That's the resource base. So the presumption that technology is going to be awesome is meaningless without a crisp definition of what the resource base is that you're applying that technology against, right? So we could say that we think kryptonite is a real thing. Unfortunately, none of it exists on this planet, but I've got the best JPL engineers together and they have found the best possible way to extract kryptonite, but there's none here. How much is that technology going to help? Not at all. It's a thought experiment at that point. So the first question I would have had to, to Doomberg is, what is the resource base that you are applying all of this wonderful technology to? And here we um, have to take a look. He didn't supply any of any of that, um, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure his argument, if I was to steel man it, he would say, hey, Chris, resource, if you look at the resource base, if you look at total reserves of oil, those have just been either steady or going up through the whole block of time because every time oil gets a little tight, people find more. And the reserve base goes up. So he might be thinking of the reserve base as, as something that is not going to bite within our lifetimes. I'm going to present data to suggest it will, particularly for the U.S., but for the world generally. And I'm resting it on this, which is the Energy Information Agency, uh, the, the EIA. They have a short-term energy outlook, the STEO, the STEO, uh, and a tight oil update. This coming from Dennis Coyne over at Peak Oil Barrel. This is one of the greatest places on the internet to get your up-to-date energy information. And we're going to dive into some of that. So Dennis took apart the STEO and looked at this short-term energy outlook. And here's what's in there right now. So this is looking at world. C plus C is crude plus condensate. This is a traditional measure of crude. It doesn't include lots of other stuff, natural gas, liquids, ethanol. It's just crude, crude oil which is the awesome tasty stuff in this story. And here the STEO is saying, huh, here's what we see going forward coming in through this year. And I think you can clearly see that crude C plus C 
it's kind of flatlining out. Can you can you sort of see how it's doing that, right? Um, that's just how it's been. And the STEO further carries forward and says, looking into the future, it's kind of going to be like that for a while. Now, that comports with something else we've talked about recently. JP Morgan recently came out their commodity desk, looked out to 2030 in this particular case. That's over the next seven years. And asked the question, well, six now, um, asked the question, hey, how much oil demand is going to be out there? That always rises year over year. That's the black line on top compared to how much oil supply does the world have? And here they did the same thing I would do, which is they added up all the fields. Like, it's not like there's oil in the world. There's Saudi Arabia has some stuff and the United States has stuff. There's projects ongoing. There's different fields opening up. There's other ones in depletion and decline. It's a big, complicated story. You add it all up. And they come up with this chart. And what they found was in the dark blue wedge on the bottom, baseline supply starts out at about 102 million barrels there in 2023. And it just starts wobbling down that by 2030, the baseline, the stuff that's currently being produced today, those fields are declining. So they decline from 102 down to about 83 million barrels per day. So about 20 million barrels a day is lost from existing fields. It's about right. The next light blue wedge on top of that is non-OPEC slash U.S. replacement. So uh, this is just other fields that are coming on, but it's not OPEC, right? There in the black on top of that, that little tiny insignificant wedge is OPEC supply growth. So they're saying, look, we don't think OPEC can really grow meaningfully from here for reasons. And total supply would be that red line then. And look, there's a gap. There's a gap by 2030 of 7.1 million barrels a day that is just actually gets wider from there going forward. So this is not consistent with the idea that somehow oil is going to just continue to grow steadily uh, in, in, in amounts because of, well, magic technology. Now, let me not, not be too dismissive, but understanding that, that this of, of that thesis before we get fully into it, um, this is a really important concept, really important. And by the way, if you want to understand this larger suite of things, I'm a systems analyst when you get right down to it. I like how the big pieces come together. I like how they connect. I actually connect the economy, energy, and environment into one thesis. That's the crash course. And that information in that book, that is power. And it's the first step towards resilience. Because if you read that book the way I wrote it and the way I've interpreted it and thousands and thousands of people have interpreted it, it's just data. It's just dots. You string them together and it says, oh, we have an infinite exponential money system. It needs to grow infinitely, exponentially. And that means we have to have infinite exponential growth of the underlying resources. And we can't have that. So uh, that's going to hit in trouble, but it's not going to hit trouble. That trouble has already started. You already feel it. You already know it. And if you want to know how to become resilient, consider joining the number one online resilience community. We have a great group of people. We're, stick, we're wrestling with all of this because this is big stuff I'm talking about. It's got huge implications. What do those implications mean to you? You're going to have to talk about that with a lot of people and process it uh, to get your head around it. Now, here's the hypothesis from Doomberg. He says, quote, under the flawed assumption that commodity companies are technical laggards compared to the likes of Google, Facebook, and Apple, analysts routinely misjudge the pace of innovation occurring in the sector, the oil sector in this case. In reality, the deflationary impact of technology development is one of the most significant hallmarks of the energy industry. What was deemed expensive or impossible a few years ago routinely becomes commonplace over time, 
converting ever-increasing swaths of resources into economically exploitable reserves. That has been true up to now. Will that always be true in the future? Is that a, a, an extendable assumption that we can make? This is where we got to rest on the data. For the latest proof of this powerful phenomenon at work, we turn to a piece published in Bloomberg just last week, emphasis added throughout. And here's where he said um, this, this part with that green bar, this is from a Bloomberg article and it reads, quote, explorers are squeezing crude out of new wells more efficiently because of innovations in everything from electric pump technology to new strategies for deploying workers while fracking wells to minimize downtime. A key example has been the replacement of the iconic decades-old pump jack with high-tech underground gear as tall as a three-story building that sits inside a well to push more crude to the surface. And I added editorially, more quickly, not more oil overall, just more quickly. It's a way of getting it out faster and cheaper. On a recent windswept morning in Permian Basin, uh, da, 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 the company has reduced the time it takes to drill an average well by about 40%. Over the last three years, thanks in part to boring slightly smaller holes, adjusting the solution, the mud solution that's pumped down the holes. Da, 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 da. Okay. If you read this, everything I've underlined doesn't tell us how we get more oil out of the ground. It tells us how we get it out of the ground more quickly and more cheaply. Again, the technology is great, but if we have a technology for getting kryptonite, but there's no kryptonite, it doesn't matter how cheaply or if it does it more cheaply. So the real question we have to ask is, great, it's amazing the technology. It's amazing the innovation that happens in the shale space. No argument. I've visited the sites. I've talked with the people. It is astonishing what they do. And I'm glad they do it. Now, the question though is, how much stuff is over here? So the assumption is that reserves will always continue to grow because they have. Is that a fair assumption? That's what we're going to come up to first. Problem number one, though, is even if we get the stuff out of the ground more cheaply, you run into Jevon's paradox. And, and Jevon's paradox here, or Javon's paradox, says, quote, in economics, the Javon's paradox uh, occurs when technological progress, or government policy, increases the efficiency with which a resource is used or extracted, reducing the amount, of, the amount necessary for any one use. But the falling cost of the use induces increased demand enough that the resource use is increased rather than reduced. Governments typically assume that efficiency gains will lower resource consumption, ignoring the possibility of the paradox arising. Ah, so, oh, hey, we'll just, make, we'll just make cars have much, much higher fuel standards, and that will cut gasoline use. Oops, now people drive more, right? It, it, it offsets. So Javon's paradox is a really big deal. So problem number one is even if we have this technology that makes the oil cheaper, that doesn't solve anything because we end up using more of it. And that's what we see in rising consumption over time. The world is using more oil today than it did last year, more than the year before, and on and on and on, with a couple little wiggles and dips here and there for recessions. But otherwise, it's been a pretty unbroken uh, string of using more and more. So that's problem one. Problem two is this. Um, so this comes from Art Berman, and this is an analysis that looks at and breaks out that C plus C is on the bottom and that big orangey thing on the bottom. That's crude plus condensate. On top, uh, we have the NGL, that's natural gas liquids. I'll talk about more that more in a bit. But ultimately, you can see here that demand is just wants to do that. What it's been doing for decades, that's that dotted line I've drawn up there. That's demand. But you can see here, things kind of nose over around 2027 in this particular 
um, analysis. And but you can see it's starting to flatline a little bit there. This is exactly what JP Morgan's talking about. This is our Berman's analysis. It, it comes through here. This is where the EIA is starting to look at how things are going. So how do we make up for that gap between supply and demand? Now, Doomberg's thesis is that in anybody's lifetimes, it's nothing to worry about. There's plenty out there. Technology will solve this. Now, I don't understand how we how we square that chart with this. <clears throat> but this really, even all that growth that we've seen in the past few years, such as it is, rests on this. The United States shale oil. So this is broken down again by Art Berman, very helpfully. Green is conventional oil. That's also known as cheap oil. That's the super cheap stuff. That's the stuff we were getting out of the ground for a dollar or two or maybe five or ten dollars a barrel. Then we have Alaska up there in yellow. Then we have offshore. That's more expensive oil because, you know, you got to build those big rigs and operate in the ocean and the ocean's always trying to wreck your stuff and usually succeeds. Um, so that's more expensive. And then the tight oil, that's the shale oil. That's that stuff in the red right there. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting and we're going to get a little this. The details matter. So part one here, I'll go pretty far into the details. Part two, I'm going all the way to the details because my subscribers know that the details actually matter in this story. Again, from Mark Berman, another very helpful breakdown here. This is looking at that oil growth over recent times where we can see on the bottom conventional oil and offshore oil actually has been going slightly down for decades. This is like, eh, it's not sure ain't growing. Now you can see that little, <clears throat> let me see if I get my laser pointer out here. Do, 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 hang on with me one second. Uh, yeah, laser pointer. So yeah, you can see here, it's going down. How about other tight oil? So this is, there's a bunch of shale basins out there. Maybe you've heard the names. There's the Bakken, there's the Eagleford, there's the Permian, etc. If you take the Permian out, because that's the top latest orange thing on the top of this chart, every other tight oil, every other shale basin that collectively made all of that red down there, that red is all the shale basins, which includes the Permian, which we're going to talk about specifically, plus all the other ones. This matters. It really matters. Trust me, I'm going somewhere with this. We see here that all the other shale oil eh, also kind of, kind of, kind of wobbling down a little bit. It's had its ups and downs. All the growth that we need to understand actually in the United States is really coming out of the Permian. So this makes it easy. Now we really only have to analyze where are we in the Permian story because everything else seems to be pretty well accounted for. Um, there was a, a big upsurge here in all the other basins combined, but they've been basically at the same level since about here. Um, so that's a good long time. That's long enough to say, hmm, that's probably the story. Now, here's where it gets super fascinating. Back to Dennis's amazing analysis from Peak Oil Barrel. He said, and by the way, Dennis is a very much a, a bull on the Permian, but he started to, he just recently had to reanalyze his model, look at it, tweak it. He does a very, I think, intellectually honest job of saying what he thinks. And when he needs to revise stuff, he revises it. I don't always agree with him, but I love the approach. Um, so let's look at the Permian scenario. Let's put our attention on that one shale basin, because as we just saw, it's really that one shale basin. This is the story. This is the story. So when we turn our attention there, when Dennis does, he says, oh, well, here is a model. And, you know, a lot of assumptions in the model, how many wells ultimately are going to be drilled. This is 81,000 total wells. Um, what do you think the ultimate resource is? This could be off. There could be more. Maybe technology unlocks more of it. So give it, give it some wiggle room. But fundamentally, his model now says, well, the peak starts soon here. And then it, you see, it doesn't run out. But between here and 2030, 
it starts to really nose over, maybe not that much, you know, five and a half million barrels a day coming out by 2030. What are we at? Uh, uh, four and a half million, still plenty, but then it rocks down. And by 2040, it's pretty much a, a dead field at that point in time with just maybe a half a million barrels a day coming out of 81,000 wells. So these are all tiny little stripper wells at that point. But this is inconsistent with the idea that what we're, what's going to happen is that more and more and more oil is just going to magically come out of the ground because clever monkeys. Now, across all the shale plays, this is how Dennis puts this all together. You can see the ultimate reserve here is about 59 total gigabarrels, billion barrels. Again, coming from peakoilbarrel.com. This is why right here, this is why I begin to peg 2025 is the start of the troubles. Because once the world wakes up to the idea that this oil juggernaut in the U.S. is now going to have to struggle along to just maintain oil output. We're not growing anymore. We're not going to expand our output by 30%. We're not going from 13 million barrels a day to 18, right? It's not happening. In fact, under this model, we've got maybe a year, 2024, to continue to pretend like the United States is this amazing juggernaut with clever monkeys who can technologically get their way to anything they want to do. But fundamentally, the shale space is a very simple story to analyze in the sense that there's only so many acres and you need X acres for every well. Therefore, we can calculate how many well spaces do we have. That's what a model like this takes into account. All right. So if Dennis is correct, then I'm going to amend Art Berman's chart, very famous chart with all the colors on it, to look like this. This is a summation of Dennis's output with Art's chart here. So you can see the tight oil is going to be this fairly small, brief, flash in the pan, wonderful, amazing, technologically gifted, brilliant moment in time. But the mistake that a lot of people are making in the United States and in companies and in the financial space, and particularly in the portfolio space for people who are trying to run like, you know, 75 year horizon pensions, the mistake is thinking that this is, that this is not going to happen that it is going to be the case where the United States is for somehow by magic is just going to continually innovate its way with technology to always get more oil out of the ground. But first you have to understand how much oil is there. You can't get it out if it's not there. doesn't matter how good the technology is if you can't get it out, if there's nothing really there. So, so that's the real tension. And so there we're going to have to see what kind of data we really have. Now, <clears throat> narrative is important. Narrative is really important. We've been telling ourselves a set of stories here in the United States for a long time that goes like this. Now there's going to be peak oil demand. BP says it. Bloomberg, global oil demand to reach its peak this decade. The International Energy Agency says, this is from October of 2023, it's peak demand, not peak oil. It's just peak demand. People won't want it. Why won't they want it? Well, you know, Financial Times says peak fossil fuel demand this decade. And really, let's get down to it. It's EVs. EVs are going to drive peak oil this decade, peak oil demand this decade. That's what Bloomberg thinks. Um, but of course, as we've just found out, electric car adoption has been a little bit slower than people thought. And it's maybe even without subsidies going to be tricky. And there are issues around this getting. Now we're down to the, the exciting part of the story was when they were writing articles like this. Now we're down to the harder part of the story. The truth is, that it's not going to be possible for EV cars, let alone trucks, buses, planes, container ships, to really eat into 
the transportation fuel sector part of this story. And by the way, that's not just me thinking that. Remember, all of these articles have been like several years have been talking about how peak oil demand, peak oil demand, peak oil, particularly peak gasoline demand, peak gasoline demand. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Javier Blas writing in Bloomberg in December 28th here says that peak and gasoline demand turns out to be a mirage because, quote, even as EV sales increased, the global oil industry sold more gasoline than ever this year, surpassing the previous 2019 peak that the IEA, the same ones, had expected would remain an unassailable all-time high. Goes on to say outside wealthy neighborhoods, you don't see many of those EV cars. Why? They're expensive and, you know, poor people can't afford them. Um, here is what the chart looks like. Uh, and the IEA thought, well, you know, that blue line is what they thought it was going to be going forward. The black line is reality. So guess what? Peak oil demand is not here. Peak gasoline demand isn't even here. But even if we took gasoline out of the equation entirely, we would still be consuming as much oil because 30% of oil is not used for transportation. I know everybody thinks that's, that's it. That's it. That's the be all end all. Oil is because planes, trains, and automobiles move, right? But 30% of oil goes into plastics, polymers, resins, waxes. It's, it's, the, it's the feedstock for over 2,000 separate base industrial processes out there that give us all the amazing things like the plastic and the, and the dyes for this mouse or, um, you know, any of this computer gear I have around near the cameras. I mean, oil, um, it's in there and in there heavy. So now we don't see any peak demand in anybody's forecasts for this year, right? The IEA, the EIA, everybody's like, yeah, you know, demand's going to kind of wobble up. You know, everybody has a slightly different view on it. OPEC, EIA, IEA, blah. I just drew that dotted line on top of it. Oil demand is going to go from a Let's call it 102 million barrels per day to somewhere around 104 million barrels per day. And that's what it's going to be in 2024. And by the way, that's what the economy is going to want the year after that, another 2 million barrels a day. And after that, after that, now, can that happen? Everything hinges on your answer to that question and what you believe to be true. I don't like to have to form opinions based on, um, uh, nothing. So I like data. So let's go there. Now, Doomberg wrote here, he's like, well, you know, the seductive nature of this thesis that, you know, we might run out of stuff someday, that kind of assertion, it feels like it could be true, makes it difficult to vanquish. Well, I don't, I don't actually care what it feels like. I, I care about the base data. Here's some base data for you. This is looking at the output from these shale wells. Again, brilliant, beautiful technology. Amazing what these people have done. However, you will notice here that each one of those color wedges is a different year of drilling. And what you find out is that if you stopped drilling in any given year here, um, I've noted as if we stopped drilling here in this year completely, what would happen within a year, total oil output would be down 45% across that entire cohort of years stretching back uh, more than a decade. So thousands and thousands and thousands of wells, but they produce and then they drop off really quickly. This is called the Red Queen effect in the shale space. If you want more oil out of the ground next year than this year, you have to drill a lot of wells. And yes, the drilling rigs have been getting more efficient, but you still need more oil wells in the ground in order to get more oil out. And if you stop or if you just can't keep up with your decline rate, you will find that you have lot less coming out of the ground. So where are we in that part of the story? <clears throat> well, this is a little awkward. Um, these are drilling rigs in the Permian. 
And because of oil prices and everything, we see that over the past, oh, I don't know, six, seven months here, we've gone from 360 drilling rigs all the way down to about 304. Um, so there's this been this huge drop off in rigs and the rigs. Yes, they're more efficient. That offsets this story a little, but fewer rigs means fewer holes being drilled means we're probably going to get less coming out of the ground in the future. Add that all up. Where do we go? Dennis has done that in his model. And as goes the Permian basin, so goes the whole world. This is crude plus condensate against C plus C. Here he's showing how he changes his thinking. In October of 23, this was the model in the red line that he'd had. But, um, you know, by November, he was this yellow line. And then with the most recent data that just came in, he's now down to this blue dotted line. And he is on this right here. And so you can see there's been a little bit of a downward revision here. But most importantly, really importantly, this peak has been moved back from, say, 2029 to this blue peak back here, which is about 2025, maybe 2026. This is a big deal, folks. This is going to change everything. If or when that comes true, that the world sees that the United States is basically at its own peak of oil, we know that Russia has announced that it's at its own peak of oil. We know that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has announced that they would have difficulty sustaining production above 11 million barrels per day. Um, they claim otherwise, but but we had that whispered comment by Macron, right, to Biden back in the day. He was sort of sotto voce in front of the whole world when he knew people would be listening, telegraphing that Saudi Arabia was saying to the world, hey, we're going to have trouble getting more out of the ground going forward. By the way, what has Saudi Arabia been doing? They've been making alliances with Iran partnered and brokered by China. They've also been cutting production at a time when cutting production in the past would have meant losing market share to somebody else. Why would one of the world's most sophisticated oil investors cut their output? Well, because they need a higher price to sustain themselves and they're not afraid of losing market share. Why? Because it doesn't exist. Nobody's going to step in and fulfill that. Why? Because we are really close to this chart being absolutely true. What happens next? <clears throat> As goes the Permian, so goes the whole world at this point. I think that we're going to see oil get very, very expensive, expensive, and even in short supply. That's what higher expense means. It could. This is outside of anything that might happen with a Houthi attack on a tanker, with Iran jumping into the fray, with the United States attacking Iran, with Russia and China potentially siding with Iran, with ships getting sunk. None of that. That stuff... Well, that makes all of this story just go on to uh, get rocket strapped to it and it goes way, way faster. Instead, I'm saying this is a normal geologic process. We're about to hit peak oil here in the United States, clever or not, and it's going to shock everybody when it finally comes. And knowing that is really important, which is why when it all comes right down to it, um, I'm going to tell people in part two for my subscribers back at Peak Prosperity more detail, what it means, what any of us can and should be doing about this. This is really when I think we can peg the trouble starting. I think they're starting because of resource issues. Of course, there will be lots of other explanations put out there for why other people think this is all happening. There'll be a religious aspect to this. There'll be political aspects. There'll be monetary aspects. Those are all reasonable explanations. But under it all, every war in history has been a resource war. Power, money, oil, food. Those are the biggies. With that... Thank you very much for listening. We will be back with you next time. I hope you got a lot out of this. If you liked it, please come by Peak Prosperity. Consider joining. 
the number one online resilience community where we have conversations like this all the time.